Morning, everyone. You are all a long way away. Mark is right. Good morning to those on Zoom. So we're in our last chapter of Lamentations. <clears throat> Let me pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you that we can give this time to think through what you've spoken to us through the prophet Jeremiah. I pray that you'll speak to our hearts by your spirit that you will encourage us, challenge us, and build us up as your church, that we might live more faithfully to you and to your word. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I don't know about you, but <clears throat> when I read a story, a novel, or watch a movie, I want it to have a good ending. I don't like the kind where it all ends in disaster and sorrow. Uh, one of my favorite stories is The Lord of the Rings. I grew up reading it as a teenager. I read it, you get in that big fat book where all three, well, six books almost are stuck into one. And I used to love reading that. And when they put it out on film, Natasha and I were still living in Spain. So we thought, well, let's go see it. So we went to the movies to watch the first installment, The Fellowship of the Ring. And we loved it. So it was brilliant, you know, wonderful. Can't wait for the next one. But as we came out of the movie theater, we could hear people grumbling in Spanish saying, how can you end a movie like that? That's no good. What a useless film. Because, of course, people there hadn't grown up with The Lord of the Rings. They'd grown up with Don Quixote and things like that. And so for them, it was a strange ending. Gandalf, the great wizard, was dead. So they thought. Boromir was dead. This king. Two of the hobbits were carried off into captivity. Sam and Frodo were lost, wandering around in the wilderness. And they were thinking, what a crazy kind of ending is that? But of course, we knew the full story and we couldn't wait. For the next installment, I'll give you a huge spoiler alert. If you haven't seen the latest James Bond film, James Bond dies. It's tragic. Finally reunites with the love of his life or one of the many, but the one he really liked the most. And he's dead. What a way to end the story. Well, to be honest, Lamentations chapter five leaves us with a similar feel to that. There is no they lived happily ever after. There is no happy ending. The last verse of the book is so depressing for the Jewish people that when they read it at their festivals, they will then go around and read verse 21 again because they want to end on a hopeful note. They don't like the way it ends. And so as we come to this, we kind of are left thinking what's going on. And in the book we're following, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, we are looking at this idea in chapter five of lament being a roadmap to grace. That's kind of the way we're going to go through the chapter this morning. Now, let me just remind us where we've got to. Chapters one and two, a broken world and a holy God. The people of Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, they've ignored God. They've gone away from him. They've not listened to the prophets. They've broken the covenant. They've been worshiping other gods, living like the nations around them. Even their own prophets at times and priests are the very ones who lead them astray. And so God acts in judgment. That is the context of the book. The Babylonians invade. They lay siege to Jerusalem over many years, two, two to three years, perhaps. And that gives rise to some of the terrible imagery we've had read to us over the course of the last four weeks. But of course, as we see the destruction of Jerusalem and what Jeremiah writes about it, those words he expresses to God, it also gives us words to come to him to approach him for the brokenness we see in ourselves and in the world around us. 
Lament is our response to loss, loss brought about by living in a broken, sinful world. And of course, it is, as we even heard in Nehemiah's prayer, a deep expression of grief and emotion, but one that leads us to hope and trust in God. And that was where we got to chapter three with those amazing truths, the central truth of the whole book, the theological heart of Lamentations. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. We read in chapter three, verses 22 to 23, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Isn't that a great point even just to stop now and think this is a new morning. God's mercies are new again for us. Great is his faithfulness. And last week, we then looked at chapter four with the unearthing of idols that that showed us. We thought about the idolatry that not only brought about Jerusalem's destruction, but was that were actually revealed through it. As they lost everything they were putting their trust in, they were, those idols were destroyed. And we thought about our own hidden idols, anything we're putting ahead of God, anything we're looking to, to give us what only God can give. It's actually a mercy when God brings them to light and helps us to deal with them. And sometimes that does take shaking up. And so we come to Lamentations 5, this roadmap to grace. This is the only chapter that's not carefully crafted as an acrostic with the Hebrew alphabet, but it does have the same number of verses as the alphabet. So it's the same length in verses as the other chapters, except chapter three, but it's the shortest one. The verses are more condensed, more abrupt, as if Jeremiah is just wanting to get all this out and he doesn't have time or energy anymore to do this kind of careful starting it with the alphabet each time. This is written, the scholars tell us, perhaps quite a bit after the, the destruction of Jerusalem. Looking back several, many years later, not quite up to the time of Nehemiah, but Jeremiah is looking back. And the consequences of defeat linger on. There seems to be no resolution. There's no closure, no restoration in sight. So after the immediate shell shock and desperation, there's now this sense of despair. Will this never end. Yet the important thing to see is that doesn't stop Jeremiah from praying, from talking to God and bringing to him this situation. And one of the keys that this author identifies in this book is that it's crucial to keep turning to God, to keep praying, no matter how we feel, which is what lament enables us to do. It enables us to bring those big questions, even that sense of complaint. And that's going to be reflected in chapter five. Chapter five is essentially three prayers to the Lord, Lord with capital letters to Yahweh, the divine name of God in the Old Testament. He's addressed directly in verse one, in verse 19 and verse 21. And each of those is going to give us a, a heading for our roadmap to grace. Verse one, remember. Then when we get to verse 19, we will see rain. Not R-A-I-N, but rain, R-E-I-G-N. Couldn't inflict my PowerPoint on you this morning because of the newbie at tech. And then verse 21, restore. So this gives us a pattern of prayer, this roadmap to grace that we can learn from and use as we live in a world where we haven't seen the end of the story yet, where many people are living without a happy, happily ever after type of life. And as the author of this book puts it, lament tells you where to look and whom to trust when pain and uncertainty 
hang in the air you breathe, where to look, whom to trust, when pain and uncertainty hang in the air you breathe. So let's look at these three prayers, beginning with verse one. Remember, O Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Jeremiah there calls on God to do two things, to remember all that's happened to them, this siege, the destruction, the devastation. And then he asks him to look and see their current disgrace, their current situation, a people in exile away from home. And having called on God to remember and to look, he then lays it out for God. Says, in case you haven't realized, this is our situation. This is what we've been through. And what he's doing there is actually from all the way from verse 2, all the way down to verse 18, is simply a rehearsal, a recitation of that shame and disgrace. He lays out the consequences they've suffered through breaking their covenant with God. And covenant is just that idea of an agreement between God and us. Talk about a marriage covenant. But their covenant was to be God's people and for God to be their God. <clears throat> and they stipulated in that covenant how they should live. And because they'd blown that, they'd also lost the blessings of the covenant. Everything was turned upside down. There was a reversal of how life should be in the covenant with God. Look at verse two, the land, the land was their inheritance under the covenant. That is now turned over to aliens, our homes, to foreigners. Verse three, instead of being able to care for widows and orphans, which is part of their covenant responsibility, Deuteronomy 14, they are themselves now widows and orphans. That's pretty much all that's left, Jeremiah is saying. There's no way we can care for them. We are them. Verses four to six, what was once freely available, water, wood, as part of God's provision, now has to be bought. They now have to go begging to other nations. They are actually the picture of modern day refugees escaping the land, hoping for water, food from those lands they travel through. Under the covenant, Deuteronomy 15 tells us, God promises, if you're in my covenant, you won't have to borrow from anyone else. They will come to you to borrow. Here we are. This is turned upside down. And verse 7 reminds us of the root of that again, as we saw in chapters 1 to 2. It is sin. Our fathers sinned and are no more. We bear their punishment. Then verses 8 to 10, things just get worse. The pitiful conditions they're living in. Instead of living as three free people with the blessing of abundant grain and food, which they would have had in God's covenant, they're now starving, enslaved. Verses 11 to 16 gets even worse. Those desperate wretchedness and terrible events that have happened to them, described there to women, to virgins, to princes, to elders, to young men, to boys. Everything has gone wrong. The exact opposite of life under the covenant where young and old flourish. And this is summed up in verse 16. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. It's all gone wrong. The king is no more. It's a little bit like the ending of the Fellowship of the Ring, where it all seems to be lost. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Jeremiah lays this all out before God. God knows it but he still takes time to lay it all out to God. And then as he does that, he expresses not just what's happened, but how they're feeling about it. Verse 17, because of this, our hearts 
are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. The sin, the disaster has caused them to feel discouraged, desperate, in despair. And not only that, perhaps worst of all for them, Mount Zion, verse 18, is now desolate with jackals prowling over it. Mount Zion, Zion is just another word for Jerusalem. Mount Zion is where the temple is, the very center where God dwells, where they should be worshiping him. That center is now abandoned. It's broken down so much so that wild animals, jackals, can prowl about in it happily. This, as one commentator puts it, is the ultimate in tragic reversal. It shows, as another says, the potential chaos of life without God, as Mark was reminding us earlier. 17 verses of disaster, destruction, sorrow, shame. Jeremiah says, Lord, remember, look and see this. Look at our shame. Here it is. Let me spell it out for you, saying, and it's too much for me to do that alphabet trick again. I'm just throwing it all out to you, Lord. So the first thing to see is that lament expresses shame and hurt to God. It doesn't ignore them, doesn't try and cover it up. It brings it to the open. It embraces that shame and hurt in God's presence. And the author of this book makes the point that as Christians, we're very often uncomfortable talking about pain and disappointment and shame. We don't want to bring it up with other people or share it. We maybe think God expects that kind of stoic attitude, that stiff upper lip, that, how are you this morning? I'm fine, thank you. It's not good to express emotion, especially those negative ones like confusion, desperation, hurt. But Jeremiah lays these all out before God. Our hearts are faint. Our eyes grow dim. Restoration doesn't come to those who live in denial. We can honestly lay out our pain before God. And the first step on this roadmap to grace is to ask God, remember, remember our struggle. But we need to realize also that in the language of the Old Testament, to ask God to remember is to ask God to act, to act in salvation. So to ask God to remember is not just to lay out the tragedy before him, It's also to ask him to intervene. And we see that time and time again in the Old Testament. God remembers Noah, Genesis 8.1, and saves him and his family. Genesis 9, we're told that when God sees the rainbow, he remembers his covenant with mankind and all living things to never again flood the world. God remembers Lot, Genesis 19, and saves him from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God remembers Rachel and grants her prayer for a son, Genesis 30. But I think perhaps most pertinently for Jeremiah's audience, there's people now suffering exile, wondering when this is going to finish. There's that great line in Exodus 2, where the people of Israel, themselves at that time, suffering in slavery to the Egyptians, it says this, God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God remembered his covenant, he acted, he intervened, and we have the wonderful story of the Exodus. I think that's what Jeremiah is saying here. God, don't just leave us like this. Remember, act again, deliver us, give us that new Exodus. So lament calls on God to remember and allows us to express the shame and struggles that we are facing to God openly. 
in one sense, it's a prayer of humiliation because no one likes to admit their weaknesses and their struggles. But we, we know that God lifts up those who humble themselves before him, James 4, 6. That is most of the chapter. 17 verses all the way through from verse 2 to verse 18, laying out their woes to God, to the Lord. But the new prayer comes. You, O Lord, reign forever, verses 19 and 20. You, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Having asked God to remember, to look and see their suffering, Jeremiah then makes this most important declaration. Despite the chaos, God is still on the throne. Despite the hurt and pain, God is still in control. Some English versions have a but at the beginning of there. But you, O Lord, reign forever. That small word that Chris pointed us to a couple of weeks ago with big theological significance. Jeremiah is clinging in faith to a truth that does not seem to be real at that point in time. In fact, we know that many, many Jews at the time said, well, God isn't in control. God isn't sovereign. If this has happened, the gods of Babylon must be more powerful. How can Jeremiah declare this as he looks at that city broken down and that temple destroyed? Well, he does it basing this on what he knows is true from Scripture. Exodus 15, 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Give many more. Psalm 96, 10, the Lord reigns. Psalm 102, 12, but you, O Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. Just as we saw in chapter three, that we have to hold on to the truth of God's love and faithfulness. So we also have to hold on to the truth that God is in control. He is sovereign, even when it feels like the opposite is true. The author of the book we've been going through says this, Lamentations shows us that God's sovereignty and his reign are not negated by suffering. And he concludes, Lament affirms God's sovereignty when dark clouds linger. Lament affirms God's sovereignty when dark clouds linger. So yes, it is appropriate for us to express our doubt and pain, but we shouldn't let that reign in our lives. We've got to remember that God reigns. We have to hold on in faith, cling to him, express his reign, his control. And of course, that's never easy, especially when we are suffering. But there is one place where we see that paradox most clearly, that when everything seems to have gone most wrong, God is still in control, and that is at the cross. There is a paradox that as God watches his own son suffer and die, and darkness triumphs, that the full story has not yet been told. And of course, we do know the Easter story, just like Natasha and I knew the story of the Lord of the Rings and couldn't wait for what's to follow. We know the full story, even as we may be going through suffering. You reign, O Lord. We know that is true because of the resurrection. <clears throat> now, that doesn't mean a grin and bear it kind of mentality. 
Even as Jeremiah makes that wonderful declaration, you reign, O Lord, forever, your throne endures from generation to generation, he still has time to have a little protest at God, a little complaint. Verse 20, why do you always forget us? Or why do you forget us for so long? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Much as Jesus himself, facing the cross, dying on the cross, Trusting God, committing himself to God, knowing that God is in control, still prays, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? They both trust God. They both cry out to God with those deep questions. Faith and protest go together. Truth is not opposite to questions, but gives space for them. So on this roadmap to grace, we turn to God. We ask him to remember and to act. But we also declare in faith that he reigns, even as we don't see that to be true, even as we ask questions. But we hold on to it. Lord, you reign. And that leads to our final prayer, verse 21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. Return us so that we might return, as another version puts it. Return is this major theme in Jeremiah, in the prophets. They want God to return to Israel, Israel to return to God. And the sum of it is this, that God returns to Israel because of his grace. Israel returns to God through repentance. To return to God is to repent. And so Jeremiah, in effect, is saying, God, return to us. Help us repent so that you can renew our days as of old. In other words, bring us back into that covenant relationship with God. We want to enjoy your blessings and live as your people again, something that doesn't really happen until the days of Nehemiah. The message puts it like this. Bring us back to you, God. We're ready to come back. Give us a fresh start. I wonder how many times we've prayed a prayer like that as we lament over our own sin. Bring us back to you, God. We're ready to come back. Give us a fresh start. And as Jeremiah prays this prayer, I wonder if he's thinking about that new covenant that he himself prophesies about in chapter 31 of his book, when God says he will give his people this new covenant where in 31, he says, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This covenant relationship restored. Ezekiel picks up that same theme. And God promises him that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws, Ezekiel 36. That is what I think Jeremiah is praying for, that God would bring them back to himself. But under the rules of the new covenant, where God himself enables them to obey him, where God grants them life in the spirit something that is now fulfilled. We enjoy this as Christians. We live under the new covenant, something we're going to see as we go return to the book of Hebrews next week. We have received new life. God's spirit dwells in us. And I think this is key. Biblical lament will always bring us to the cross where that new covenant was established. The pathway to repentance, this roadmap to, gr to grace, goes through the cross. As the author of this book puts it, the sorrow of loss can lead us to the man of sorrows. 
because Jesus is the answer to the cause of every pain. Jesus is the answer to the cause of every pain. So the sorrow of loss can lead us to the man of sorrows, the man of sorrows who hung on the cross in our place. And of course, we know the whole gospel story. We look forward to that day when God will wipe away every tear. We look forward to the return of the king when with all of the redeemed, we will sing together that our God reigns. And so lament is a meaningful plea to a merciful God to restore us as well. Now, that would be a great place to close, thinking of God's mercy and restoration. But as I said, Lamentations doesn't leave us with a nice, they lived happily ever after kind of package. Verse 22 gives us that sense of uncertainty. As he prays, renew our days of old. Verse 21, he says, unless you've utterly rejected us, and are angry with us beyond measure. No wonder the Jewish people like to go back and read verse 21 and not end on that note. If nothing else, this last verse shows us there is no room for complacency in our faith. Hope can only be in a return to the Lord. That's the consistent message of the whole of Lamentations. False trust, false worship had brought this judgment on them. Hope has to happen as they return to God. And as Christians, the same is true for us. We celebrate, yes, God's love and compassion. We base our hope on that. We see that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as one commentator puts it, even in Christ, the church needs to know in its heart that its peace lies in trust and obedience. We can be confident of God's mercy, but not complacent. So I hope this roadmap to grace encourages us, yes, but also challenges us as we ask God to remember our struggles, to act and save us, but at the same time declaring his sovereignty, Lord, you reign. I don't see how, I don't know what's going on, but you reign, you are in control. And as we keep coming to him in repentance and asking him to restore and renew us, let's pray. Lord, as we've already been thinking this morning, we're conscious that there is so much wrong in the world and yet so much wrong in our lives too, Lord. We ask you to remember, to remember those suffering in many different ways and places, Lord, out in the world, but also in our own congregation. Lord, remember. Lord, act. Lord, save. And Lord, as we, we think about your grace, we, we affirm that you reign forever. Lord, one day we will see you face to face. One day we will see that you've put everything right. We do know the king returns. And we look forward to that, Lord, even though at the moment we may not understand what's going on. But we pray, Lord, that day by day we would be those who come to you, that we're restored, renewed, so that we might reach out and bring your good news to those who are lost. And so we ask that you would be with us in our moments of lament, as well as our moments of praise. In Jesus' name, amen.